The opinions in this program are not necessarily shared by the Cortez Radio Board of Directors or staff. You're listening to 89.5 CKTZ Cortez Community Radio. This is Max Tyson for Cortez Currents. Today we hear a first-hand account of a concerning hunting episode in Smelt Bay, Cortez Island. We'll hear from Conservation Officer Brad Adams, a local authority on the laws around hunting, and then we'll take a deeper dive with Sabina Leader Metz into some of the ecological considerations of hunting around Cortez. Cortez Currents learned of the reports on a local Facebook page, We Heart Cortez Island, that described a scary situation. Kim Lotnick tells us the story. Okay, um, my name is Kim Lotnick. I was just walking to Smelt Bay for a little journal and yeah, just taking my dog for a walk. And it was a pretty like stormy day, like the waves were pretty rough. So when I saw the guy kayaking in the canoe, I was like, okay, this is kind of weird. Like it's a really bizarre day to like go out for a canoe. <laughs> like I just thought it was super weird. I had my big like soundproof headphones on and I ended up hearing what sounded like a gunshot. And I was like, I, and all the birds that were there had flown away. And I was like, oh my God, what the F just happened? And like at the time I thought it was a seal. Like that's kind of like all I, all I could see was like something gray and kind of like flopping in the water. So I was like, oh my God, this looks like a seal. Like that's like, maybe I I was probably somewhat in shock, but I was like, this looks like a seal. I was freaking out. Later, I found out that um, somebody else was there and saw and it was a goose or that's what they think they saw. So I don't know who really knows, but I think it probably was a goose um, just considering what happened after. But later, when she posted the story to Cortez Island is home, another commenter would report a witness that it was, in fact, a goose. Anyway, so then he paddles towards it and then like I start filming him and you can tell he's like looking at me like we're looking back and forth and like I'm filming him so I'm like I feel like I'm kind of doing something naughty right now (laughs) like and then he like gets something out of the water into his boat or it looks like he does I at this point I started like walking back towards my car because I was kind of just freaking out like I was everything was going through my head like I just felt like like super (laughs) I just felt so weird and I was with my dog so I was kind of like oh my god like what if he shoots my dog for filming like off court like I really don't think he would have done that but going through my head was definitely like it was really dramatic in my head and anyways I was walking back and I ended up starting to like sprint back and he he was just paddling back like I assumed towards where his car was or whatever Um, but he was like looking at me or whatever. And I was, I assume he probably would have came and talked to me, but I was freaking terrified. I was like, Oh my God, I'm getting the heck out of here. So I, yeah, I just left and I was terrified when it happened. I felt like he was like chasing me to like, I don't think he was now thinking back on it and everything. But at the time I felt like he was chasing me. The first thing I did was I called 911 just being like, I don't know what to do. This happened. Um, like I explained the situation and they're just kind of like, well, this is out of our jurisdiction. There's nothing that we can do, which for one, that seems really weird considering like somebody smelled, uh, shot a gun in Smelt Bay and they're just like, whatever. At the time I was much more frazzled than I am now. It's been, or it's been about a month since it's happened. They didn't like really seem to care. 
I don't know, in Smelt Bay, it just felt crazy. Like it just, I was on a public beach. Like it was so close to land. It didn't really feel, I don't know. It's just like, it's a public beach. It's different than if I was, if they, I don't know if I was wandering the forest, that still doesn't seem safe, but I understand why, like how it's out of their jurisdiction, like in that sense where like I was reporting as well that I thought they shot a seal and that was illegal. I was shocked in general that they didn't seem to really care. But I am more concerned about animals than I feel like most people are. So So for support and to gather more information, she posted to Facebook. Well, I'll see what other people think, I guess. It was kind of nice to get the clarification that somebody saw and it looked like a goose because in a weird way that I don't know why, but that made me feel better. Another Facebook commenter suggested that it was probably a legal hunt. That close to the beach, I really don't think it's legal anyways, but it did make me feel better that it could have been legal. If you're allowed to do it, that's fine, but it still made me totally uncomfortable. <laughs> to get some clarity on the laws around hunting, we contacted the conservation officer for the North Island region, Brad Adams. So the, the province of BC does have open hunting seasons for waterfowl, which include ducks and geese, uh, coots, snipes, uh, snow geese, ross geese. There's, there's quite an assortment of, of waterfowl and other birds that fall under um, this type of hunting regulation, hunting season. So in region number one, which we would be captured in, is there's an open hunting season that starts October 3rd and it continues all the way until uh, January 22nd. So we do have regulations that outline proximity to dwellings. So like it's, it's unlawful for someone to discharge uh, a firearm within a hundred meters of a building. So if you're in it, that's to do with, uh, with safety. And there's also some proximity to roadways and there's municipal laws as well where some municipalities uh, may have some regulations that say there's no discharging of firearms within city limits which is uh, something different than what we have under the wildlife act but it is something that we would still enforce as well um, rcmp would also be involved with those types of uh, those types of calls cortez currents contacted aniko nelson from the srd to ask about any hunting bylaws the response we received reads, Please be advised that the Strathcona Regional District does not have any regulation in effect governing the discharge of firearms or hunting over Crown or private lands jurisdiction. Public land, uh, hunting off of the ocean where they're kind of out in an estuary in an area where people would frequent, the people would have to be aware that they're, they're responsible for where their, their shots go. And I know that waterfowl hunting is somewhat dynamic when birds are moving and flying and, and you know, shotgun muzzles are moving in different directions, but ultimately the hunter is responsible for where the shots go. So being aware of the proximity to trails, if you're on the ocean, obviously boats, uh, frequent lands of travel, if there's houses that are in a direction in which you're discharging a firearm, a person that uh, shoots toward the building and the shot of the shotgun, you know, hits and causes damage to the building or hits somebody or something that they're ultimately responsible for that. And that's the thing with, with a lot of the, with hunting practices too, is there's some things that are illegal. Yes. But there's other things that are unethical. 
it, it's legal for people to hunt, so we can't tell people that they can't hunt um, unless they're doing it unlawfully, obviously. But it's it's taking your own ethics into consideration when you're doing something. Do you really want to cause conflict um, by hunting in an estuary just outside of city limits where everybody can see you? You know, it's something where, you know, most hunters that we encounter that are way out into the bush is they try to find themselves somewhere that's they're out by their, themselves. They're, they're secluded They're They don't have a lot of people traffic around. So everybody's ethics are always different. Uh, it's, it's something that we, we definitely try to stress to people when we have the questions on, you know, is it, is it legal to hunt in this bay just outside of my community? Well, yes, it is. But what you have to consider is what the optics of that situation would be. And saying that is there's also going to be calls generated by an activity. So if somebody's hunting in that bay that's just outside the community, is they could expect that there's going to be calls generated to the conservation officer service or to RCMP about discharging of firearms. And it, it's just trying to, to explain to people to remove themselves from a situation where they could be causing conflict with the community. We, we try to push the safety aspect and try to explain everything clearly so people do understand, but the ethics are ultimately up to the people who, who are engaging in the activity. We do get calls generated every year. Uh, the calls generated would be where people are concerned that hunters are hunting in an area that they're not supposed to be hunting. So uh, uh, we don't get a lot of calls that people are upset that somebody is actively hunting. A lot of times those conflicts happen outside of calling us. They People would get upset and either go and discuss things with the hunter themselves or a situation like that where where they would kind of do like a face-to-face -face kind of discussion or face-to-face -face confrontation so typically we would end up calling the the person who had called uh, into the call center which we refer to as the complainant so we would call them back and we would have a discussion of where everything's happening the time of day and if we're familiar with the area that they're speaking to specifically and we know that it is a lawful hunting area then we would let them know uh, if there's something that piques our suspicion as being unlawful, then we would go to the area and do like a thorough investigation of, of what illegal activity may have been taking place. We relayed Kim's story to Officer Adams to get his take on this particular situation. Without me knowing a little bit more of the information, it would be hard for me to, to kind of tell. So it would be something that I would have to make a couple of phone calls and or attend the area to, to, to find that out. But if there was no restrictions on that bay being within the, the city limits and there was no limitations with the regional district about discharging of firearms in a specific area and they were that 100 meters away from a building and they were kind of out in the middle of the ocean, then it, it could be a lawful hunt without, without having any more information that says, suggests otherwise. And we asked Officer Adams to tell us a bit more about firearm safety. Uh, shotguns, they their effective range will change based on the shot that's used. The commonly used ammunition is steel shot, which effectively for waterfowl, it, it's within that 40 to 50 yard range. But depending on wind direction, um, the pellets will travel much further than that. But the effective range for waterfowl hunters is kind of inside the, the shorter shorter ranges. But the pellets could carry quite a distance especially on what we seem to get on the coast for winds on a on a day where we're getting 40 or 50 kilometer an hour gusts 
those pellets can carry in the direction of the wind quite a ways. So those are where the considerations need to be taken by the hunter is, is it, is it worth having an issue where you're, you're not hunting safely? And we asked Officer Adams to clarify which agency has jurisdiction in incidents like the one Kim reported. Well, hunting unsafely would be would be something that we would we would definitely engage with uh, engage in with the uh, in an investigation with the the CO service. That's the conservation officer service, uh, as well as RCMP could be involved as well, just based on what uh, kind of negligence that was being taken. You know, whether was it deliberate, was it accidental, what were the circumstances involved? So. Uh, both agencies could be involved in a situation where somebody is hunting unsafely. And what about hunting from boats? Is that legal? Hunting from canoes and boats is pretty common for, for waterfowl hunters in order to transport themselves into an area to, to set up in order to hunt. So hunting from a canoe that ha- that's stationary, kind of tucked up into the into the cattails or uh, anchored to shore and somebody standing in it, that's not going to be considered to be illegal. With canoes, if you're underway by by muscle power, so you're the one that's paddling it, uh, then you know that's a, a common practice for some to to kind of paddle up a uh, a small little creek or something like that and to to hunt birds. But there's no motor, there's no physical motor involved. It's all done by muscle strength. If it's a motorboat that's driving around and shooting birds as it's underway, that is illegal. And we asked Officer Adams if shooting direction can play a role in the safety of a hunt. As part of the the hunter safety training course and the firearms training course that everyone has to take in order to to be able to hunt with a with a with a firearm, is those types of things are, are taught throughout the lesson plan. Is you know you always have to be sure of your target and beyond and if you're in an area that you know that you're a hundred percent confident that you can shoot in direction a and you're going to be safe then that's the direction that they should be shooting and that's that's the safest that's the best place for them to be shooting that going outside of that is going to cause safety concerns for for the community or and members that may be kind of in an area that they don't see. For a different perspective from which to consider this matter, Cortez Currents caught up with biologist and ecologist Sabina Leder-Mentz. My name is Sabina Leder-Mentz and I am a, a coordinator with the Friends of Cortez Islands Marine Stewardship Initiative, have been for the last 25 years or so. The Marine Stewardship Projects includes foreshore monitoring, looking annually at eelgrass ecosystems around Cortez Island, subtitle species inventory monitoring, and recently, sand lance spawning surveys. Sabina also coordinates a wildlife coexistence education campaign for the Friends of Cortez Island Society and does ecological conservation work on private and public land. Um, The Canada geese that um, are the bane of of many people's uh, winters uh, are not the original or native uh, Canada goose that uh, occurred up and down the coast of British Columbia. The original seasonal or what we call a migrant population of uh, a Canada goose would uh, naturally migrate spring to fall with the seasons going north and then again going south. But in the 1970s, um, there were several introductions from Ontario, from Saskatchewan, from the prairies in general uh, to the BC coast. 
the reasons that were given, that you see written and given as to why uh, this population of, of non-native geese were introduced to the coast was uh, twofold to enhance wildlife viewing and to uh, enhance the availability of, of goose for, for hunting. So what we have now is we have this, what's called the resident population of Canada geese. And these are um, what we call multi-race hybrids. There were several subspecies of Canada geese that were introduced. And so we have these multi-race hybrids now. A population that does not display a migratory behavior at all. So they're, they're very non-migratory. They're very resident uh, in the area. And what happened following those introductions was that there was an absolute explosion in their numbers because of all the um, modern land use changes that we've made, um, it, it's provided some incredible habitat to support this explosion of population in Canada goose. So urban, suburban settings where you have grass, you have lawns with grass and water close by, and you've got people close by, so that provides protection from predators that would normally take the geese. Um, all of the huge agricultural fields that we have, especially in southern uh, mainland British Columbia. So this habitat and these changes to habitat um, really provide very secure areas and, and nutritious areas for these geese to, to feed, to raise their young. And, and it's one of the reasons that population has exploded. As a result of that, um, these huge populations of geese have become um, what people classify as a nuisance. It's essentially resulted in wildlife conflict between the geese and the uh, people. So you have nuisance, you have too many geese eating uh, too much in agricultural fields. You have geese all over Vancouver. I'm sure, I'm sure everybody's heard about the problems they're having at Stanley Park uh, with all of these Canada geese. And as well as being a nuisance, uh, there's also been quite a dramatic uh, negative ecological impact to um, aquatic plants in wetland areas or especially in our marine estuarine areas uh, along the coast as well as in uh, uh, the small islets offshore in the um, in the Salish Sea. Well the wildlife viewing has gone off the scale in Vancouver <laughs> and the uh, but the hunting has not uh, come in to balance that out at all and what's really interesting is that um, you know the the Thanksgiving bird, the, the bird that was the standard for the table at Thanksgiving was always the goose. And the Canada goose is very edible and very tasty. And, um, and this has really not kept up or, or kept up with the rising population, the hunting of them, for lots of reasons. There's a lot of people who have the geese around, enjoy the wildlife viewing aspects, uh, think it's fun to feed the geese and you have a, a whole community of people with animal rights behind them saying that these geese should not be shot. These geese should not be taken out um, of the area, even though they're an incredible nuisance and even though all of this um, uh, environmental damage is happening. So in, in my opinion, there's a complete disconnect as to what's happening here. So people, you know, this, the disconnect is between what people eat regularly on their tables and the actual connection to those living animals. So here we have uh, an incredible resource of, of protein. And so hunting is a, is a very practical and real part of, of controlling animal populations and, and just taking advantage of the, the wealth or that population explosion of, uh, of birds that are here that can serve to feed people. So 
the uh, the geese uh, not only are are a nuisance as we talked about in some of the urban centers and the agricultural fields that are there but they're also inflicting uh, incredibly um, negative impact on marine environments uh, wetland environments uh, and marine environments like estuaries because the geese the canada geese feed on eelgrass and we've seen um, uh, evidence of this on Cortez, as have all of the major estuaries uh, up and down coastal BC here, especially in the Salish Sea. One of the aquatic plants that the geese feed on is uh, eelgrass. Eelgrass is one of about 50 species of seagrasses that occur worldwide. It's not a seaweed and it's not a grass. Uh, it's this um, amazing true flowering land plant that adapted itself to living submerged under seawater. That's quite something what it's done. Uh, it's done it very successfully. It is a marine perennial. And so on Cortez, as elsewhere along coastal BC, we find extensive uh, meadows of eelgrass occurring in the soft sediment habitat. So sand and mud, especially estuaries where rivers and streams are running to the sea. Eelgrass plays incredibly important ecological roles in the marine environment. The first of which is that the root system they have, it's a series of, of rhizomes, underground stems called rhizomes, and these um, are very extensive and they move out and they actually stabilize the sediments. So the soft sand or the muds, they will stabilize those bottom sediments. And the leaves or blades that grow up from the roots, they slow water currents down. And these longshore water, uh, longshore uh, currents as they're called, moving along shorelines are carrying a lot of sediment. And when these currents are slowed down, the sediment falls out. So the eelgrass blades are essentially affecting increased sedimentation that again drops the sediment and stabilizes shorelines. So we have a huge uh, positive uh, impact from eelgrass of stabilizing our shorelines. Secondly, eelgrass are green plants. They're primary producers. They, um, they yield very high productivity. They're producing food constantly. And this food is a very important source of food for Canada geese, for example, um, many of the geese, all of our migratory geese uh, depend on these meadows when they move through seasonally and the winter, in the spring and in the fall. And so we have not only the fresh blades being nipped off at the ends, which is which the, the eelgrass will continue to grow after it's been nipped at the, at the ends. Um, we also have the dieback of the blades that create a, a very strong uh, detritus along in the marine environments that breaks down and feeds a, a huge host of invertebrate animals as well. Eelgrass is a long slender blade, it comes up from the bottom. I've sometimes jumped off a boat in doing sampling in eelgrass, not here around Cortez, further south in the Salish Sea. Uh, jumped off the boat in dive gear, ended up standing on my feet and having eelgrass past my eyes. Um, beautiful beds, generally around Cortez, so we have uh, blades that uh, will extend vertically a meter or so. And, and what they create is this fabulous three-dimensional habitat, and that results in a huge number of species being able to live uh, in that habitat, very high biodiversity. And um, so this is what we're seeing with the, uh, the eelgrass. Um, providing uh, places to live, places to graze, places to hide um, in, the, in the habitat there. Especially important is the nursery habitat that uh, the eelgrass creates for juvenile species. Uh, one in particular are our salmon, our outgoing salmon from the streams as they hatch, off they go 
the first interface with the ocean is the estuary and is eelgrass. And that eelgrass uh, is host to uh, copepods, small invertebrates, crustaceans that are the mainstay of their food and, and then represent this incredibly important uh, nursery. Worldwide, the um, eelgrass beds and the, the health of an eelgrass bed is, is used as an indicator of, of the ecosystem health, the near shore, what we call the near shore ecosystem health. And so what we're really seeing is that that near shore health um, up and down coastal BC, Cortez Island included, uh, is, is being brought out of balance and is at this point being compromised uh, on its health. So we have this indicator in the eelgrass beds. Specifically on Cortez, uh, we've been sampling with the Friends of Cortez Islands um, eelgrass stewardship program since 2000. Uh, we have subtitle data from bays like Whaletown Bay in 2003, very healthy intertidal uh, and, and an intertidal extent of um, native eelgrass, which was gone by 2006. And all of the shellfish um, men that were working in the bay at that time had not seen, had never seen these resident geese come into the bay. And uh, in about 2005, 2006, in those years, geese started coming in in greater and greater numbers as they would be working on the beach at low tide. And uh, at some points, 50 to 100 of these geese. And um, within a few years, all of the intertidal uh, growing uh, native eelgrass uh, had been removed. And so we're seeing this effect uh, happening in, in Whaletown Bay. And in Manson's Lagoon in the late 1980s, um, due to some impact that was happening to the lagoon there and the shallowing of the eelgrass beds within the lagoon, the uh, beds became so shallow that these resident Canada geese could get in and not nip the tops or the tips of the, uh, the blades, but they could get down and actually rip the rhizomes right out. And to this day, we have no uh, existing natural eelgrass beds anymore in Manson's Lagoon. So these are some of the impacts that, that we're personally uh, feeling on Cortez Island and that the, the entire um, uh, Salish Sea is, is feeling. Also, many of our uh, small offshore islets, especially in the lower uh, Salish Sea, are nesting areas for the geese. They go there for protection from predators. And the sheer number of geese nesting there and the trampling of these small islets has a huge negative uh, ecological impact because a lot of these small islets are where many of our species at risk uh, hang out and so we're losing uh, exceptionally significant ecologically significant habitat there. So resident Canada geese are definitely uh, of concern in uh, in coastal BC ecosystems and um, and the solutions and the management plans um, still are, are continue to look only at um, how to control the population without actually going in and taking measures to to uh, invite in uh, hunters and possibly um, make a, a dent in the population through hunting that would then provide food for local people. So the geese, I, I look at it as the geese are providing us with an incredible opportunity and invitation to reconnect um, to where our food on our table that nurtures us actually comes from. How do these um, populations, these, these unnatural, non-native populations of animals affect environments? Educationally, gives us opportunities to show people some of the connections in the natural world, how one thing connects to the other and the domino effect of making the wrong choices when populations get away on us because of our introductions or our inadvertent responsibility in releasing them. 
then we need to take back uh, the responsibility of bringing things back into balance, not only for ourselves, but for the, the whole natural world and the ecological cycles that are dependent on a healthier uh, ecosystem that's there. A final word and a request from Kim. At the end of the day, if, um, if that guy's trying to get food, like all the power to him, if he's hungry and that's what he needs to um, feed himself or his family, like I do have all the compassion in the world for that, even if it scared the shit out of me, like he still deserves food. So um, I kind of just wanted to make people aware that it's just, it's scary. And uh, maybe to think twice before shooting their weapon, even if it's legal or not, just be aware of who's around you. I mean, all I really want to say is people need to give a warning, some sort of, what's a, what, do you know the warning signal? Is there like a hand signal that I don't know about that I missed or like, I don't know. I'm like, somebody should give, there should be a warning sign if somebody wants to shoot a gun in a public place. That is uh, my request. <laughs> but I don't know if that's a thing. And Officer Adams has some advice for hunters and the rest of the Cortez community. With respect to waterfowl hunters, is just ensuring that if they do have questions and concerns about areas that they're going to go in and to hunt and for community members as well, is if they have questions and general questions is they can feel free to reach out and call the Conservation Officer Service uh, at our Reporting All Poachers and Polluters line and they can ask the general questions and we can we can answer those for the public and for hunters as well so that they they have a, an understanding or some further clarification many thanks to kim lodnick officer adams and sabina Lederman for sharing with us this week that does it for this week's show you've been listening to 89.5 cktz cortez community radio this is max tyson for cortez currents goodbye this program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative.